I like this passage uh, so much that 40 years ago, in 1977, before I was ordained to preach, I preached uh, my first sermon, first in homiletics, which was a preaching class in seminary, and then uh, at the church that I was serving as an assistant to the pastor, I preached on Sunday night, and the sermon was on Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Of all the scripture, that's what I chose for my first text. Now, I still actually have the full manuscript that was, uh, it was typed out on an electric Smith Corona typewriter, <laughs> cutting edge at, at that point, and uh, as I say, it was a, a full manuscript, and I, I keep files of sermons that I have preached through the years, and so last Sunday, uh, when I began to work on this text, I told Connie about that. I said, guess what I found in the file? And uh, I, I told her about it, and she said, well, how was it? And I said, it was really bad. It was, <laughs> it was really bad. I am thankful, by the way, she said, I'm sure it was wonderful. That's, Con that's Connie. But I'm thankful for uh, gracious seminary professors and a gracious congregation that uh, didn't destroy a young man uh, preaching his, his first sermon. Uh, this week I was telling some of the staff about this and I showed them this historic document, you know, that has like yellow on the edges and stuff like, looks like the Constitution kind of. But, uh, and one of them said, well, you should just preach that. I said, no, there's nothing in here I could use uh, <laughs> any longer. But 2,150 sermons later, here we are again. Now, I have, I've taught on this passage uh, many times through the years, but it is an amazing passage. So, let's give our attention to Romans chapter 12, and we're just going to read the first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, which is truth. 
And we pray now that in these moments, as, as we consider these two brief verses that are so packed with truth, that we could never ever exhaust the meaning of them. We pray that you would apply them to our, our hearts and our minds, our lives, and that your Spirit would do his work among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He begins, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, Paul is about to give a major application. And the major application isn't just here. It's actually from here through the, re the rest of the book, through the end of the book. Uh, he is going to uh, apply what he has been teaching up to that time. Notice he says, by the mercies of God. So here's the question, the first question. What if you're not seeing the mercies of God in your life? What if you, in, in the circumstances you are presently dealing with, what if you're saying, I, this, this isn't merciful. I'm in the middle of a big mess right here. This is hard. This is difficult. I'm not feeling his mercy at this point. But that's where he starts out with that phrase, in view of God's mercy. Now, let's not forget that, that Paul wasn't naive to suffering, and neither were the ones that he was talking to. Let me remind you about the Apostle Paul. Over uh, uh, in 2 Corinthians, a couple books later, in chapter 11, we read this, verse 23. He says, uh, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. He's talking about, in essence, his his credentials. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He understood what it felt like not to feel God's mercy, 
and yet he appeals to God's mercy here. So what is he talking about if he's, if he's not talking about being free from suffering and feeling his mercy in our lives? Well, remember what we always ask when we see the therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? That's not new to anybody, but, but it, it, it's the right question. So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, which means you've got to then look back because what he is saying is, based on what I've just said or been saying, here's what I want to tell you. So what had he been saying and what, what is the therefore referring to? Well, I am convinced that he is referring to the whole first part of the letter up until then. For us, it's 11 chapters. For them, it was pages. He was saying based on, on that. So you go back to the beginning and he talks about how God's wrath is revealed to all mankind. And then uh, in chapter 1 through 3, we see all have sinned and are therefore culpable uh, that in and of itself, the fact that God didn't destroy and start over at that point showed his mercy. The next chapters speak of, of peace with God, access to God, hope in suffering being a, a member of the new humanity, being set free from sin, that we now therefore have no condemnation, that all things work together for them that love God and are called according to His purpose, that, that He is in control of our salvation from the beginning to the end, and He will carry through that which He has begun in us. And then God's rich plan for the Jews and Gentile alike, how all of that will happen. That's the mercy that he's speaking about. And then as, as we talked about last week, he could not contain himself any longer. And so we read in chapter 11, 33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to be glory forever. Amen. And he had broken into worship and then he says, Now, think back about all those mercies. Therefore, because of all of these things that, that I have said and that, that cause us to uh, burst into worship. Think about those mercies. Because here's the thing. If you're not feeling His mercy because of circumstances you're in, but if you are a child of the living God, then you have his mercy. It is yours, whether you feel it at the moment or not. 
And that's what he's been saying chapter after chapter and uh, emphasizing that that's where we are. So uh, last week we talked about from, uh, from doctrine to doxology. And this week we go the next step. From doctrine, the teaching, to doxology, the praise, to duty. But this duty must be absolutely and intimately connected to the doctrine and the doxology. Let me explain what I mean by that. What if Paul, uh, with what he says here in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, what if he had said that in chapter 1 instead? What if he had led off with, look, here's what you have to do. You've got to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Don't be conformed to the world. What if that had been in chapter 1? Well, here's what would have happened. We Pharisees, don't get offended when I say we Pharisees, because I'm convinced that, that everyone is either a recovering Pharisee or a Pharisee. So if you don't think you're a recovering Pharisee, then that must mean you're a Pharisee. So here's what I mean. Here's what, what would have happened because of our tendency to think in these ways. We would have thought we earn God's love by doing our duty. You see why? If, if that's the first thing he had said, don't do this but do this, then we would have said, okay, well we got it. We just have to don't do that and do that. And that's what Christianity is all about. But he doesn't, he doesn't even get to don't do or do for 11 chapters. Because our, our hearts that by default want to work our way to God would have been deceived into thinking that we could work our way to God. And that is just simply not the case. And so, that's why the order is important. His mercies, his mercies followed by application and never the other way around. It's never do this and don't do this and then you will receive his mercies. But too easily, we flip those around. And we mustn't, because that's not the way he works. Paul doesn't then ask for a favor. 
He speaks of their commitment in view of the truths that he has just expounded. So he says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offer. Some versions say present your bodies. Let me, let me give a, a different way of accenting that. Like think in terms of a birthday present. Present your body to him. You see, like a, like a, a gift. Now, why doesn't he say, present your heart and mind and soul and body? Well, he's giving something very concrete. And if you really do present your bodies to the Lord, it can only come as a reflection of a presented heart and soul. That's the only way it really is being presented to him. And then he, he talks about living sacrifices. Uh, Jews and Gentiles would have understood that system. We don't think nowadays in terms of uh, a sacrificial system, but, but that would have made perfect sense to them. So uh, when a perfect sacrifice was made, uh, that was what was seen in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But no longer do worshipers come with sheep and goats and lambs and other offerings and burn them before the Lord as a sacrifice for their sins. But there is still a New Testament sacrificial system. And this is it. R.C. Sproul says, It's not a sacrifice that we give in order to make an atonement, but a sacrifice that we give because an atonement has been made for us. You get it? So it's a response. It's not trying to get something from God, but it's responding to that which He has done to to who he is, to his mercy. I had an elder in a, a previous church that, uh, and he, this wasn't original with him, but he used to say the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the uh, altar. I like to think of it in a different way, though. I don't even think crawling off the altar is the hardest part. I think the real problem of a living sacrifice is not being willing to crawl on the altar. And that's our issue. That's why Paul bases his reason for presenting ourselves in view of God's mercy. I want us to go back to that again. Because what are the alternatives to why we would present ourselves? Well, maybe out of a fear of God. Or maybe presenting ourselves, we would never use this term, but to bribe God, to get something from Him. If I do this, if I'm more obedient, then maybe I won't suffer the trial I'm going through. 
to get him to do what we want him to do. But do you see, you see the problem with all of that? The problem is then you're presenting the sacrifice for you. If it's out of fear or if it's to get something from God, you're not presenting it for him. In a response to his mercies to us. Now, I want to defer here to a, another translation. Rather than the spiritual act of worship, some versions may say uh, your reasonable act of worship. The word there, and the only reason I say it is because it, it sounds like our uh, English word, uh, logican, which is where we get logic. So here's, here's the point. We could even say our uh, our rational service or worship. In other words, it just makes sense in view of who God is and what he has done, in view of his mercy, it makes sense for us then to be a living sacrifice to him. And it doesn't make sense for us not to be. So it's a, a bold call to total commitment. And halfway commitment just doesn't make sense. It's not rational. If we decide to give part of our life to God and keep other parts for ourselves, everything is yours, Lord, except that relationship over there. Everything, Lord, is yours, except my future. Do you see how illogical that is in view of God's mercy? C.S. Lewis, in uh, the collection of essays that were put together, God in the Dock, and that doesn't mean like a, a boat. It's uh, over in, in England uh, in their legal system. If you are in the dock, you are, are uh, the accused. You're in the box they call it the dock. In one of, one of his essays, Lewis says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Read it again. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so ask yourself, where, where is it in my life? Am, am I that living sacrifice or am I that partial sacrifice? Sam Shoemaker said, to be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. So what's this commitment look like? Well, there's two commands, one negative and one positive. Do not be conformed to this world, to the pattern, to the, the schema, the scheme of this world. Now this is, here's some 
Here's some Greek grammar for you. Um, by the way, I learned more grammar when I took Greek way, way, way back than I, I learned in, uh, in grammar school. But uh, I, this, this is a present passive imperative. Now, let me explain that. An imperative is a command, but the passive means it's something that is done or applied to you. So when he says, do not be conformed, it's more like this. Don't let yourself be conformed. Or don't let yourself be fashioned by the world. So, so here's the application of that. It's, it's not just doing nothing. If you do nothing, then this is implying the world will fashion you. And he's warning against that. Don't let the world make you into who the world wants you to be. So that's, that's the one side of it. The world will try to conform you to them. Don't accept that. Now, let me tell you what it do, that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean to fear culture. Every culture has some values that reflect something of God. It doesn't mean to hate culture. We, we live in this world. It's fallen, yes. But we shouldn't be hateful toward the culture we live in. And it doesn't mean write off culture completely. What it does mean is to be aware of culture's influence on us. What it does mean is to think critically about culture. In other words, we, need, we know what their presuppositions are, where our culture is coming from, and if we know that and we are aware of that and we study our culture, then we can face up to it and deal with it. But too many are passive in this battle. This week I saw a, a, a George Barna survey and it was talking about uh, uh, Christian views. They, they put these out periodically, but uh, this one I, I saw again this week. It says 61% of Christians agree with ideas rooted in the new spirituality. Now the new spirituality is basically like you do good, then you'll receive good. You do bad, you'll receive bad. You know what that is? It's karma. It's not Christianity. 61% of Christians believe that? 54% resonate with post-modernist views. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism. 29% believe ideas based on secularism. And that's, you know, they would ask questions and, and that's what they determined. Now here's the other side of the issue. Too often in the past, and too often still, Christians 
have identified themselves by what they aren't or what they don't do. Here it comes. You all heard this at some point. I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with... What they said is girls that do, okay? Well, you know, that was the the theme of some people. And some grew up in churches where they said, this is who we are. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do this. Um, We uh, refuse to do that. And that was their idea of not conforming with the world. But it's more than that. I don't believe God's word calls us to do that. We will never be salt and light if we do that, if we withdraw from this world. It isn't about withdrawing. It's, it's tempting to say uh, we, we just... We just need not to watch that or, or, or do that and we'll be okay. But look, there are some things that we, we shouldn't watch or do. Absolutely. But for the most part, because we live in this fallen world, it's, looking, it's not looking away from the, the things our culture is looking at. It's looking at the same things they're looking at but looking at them with transformed minds. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Again, grammar, present passive imperative. He's saying, uh, do let that happen to you. Do let your mind be transformed. So it's not a matter of, yeah, I'm going to transform my mind, but it is God's Holy Spirit that uses His Word that transforms our mind. How's it done? It's usually gradual. It is always in the power of His Spirit, and it is always using the Word of God. The Word of God read, memorized, studied, and applied. And so then, when we see our world with a a gradually uh, mind that is more and more being transformed, we will see it radically different than those in the world see it. So what's it look like? Well, it is getting a diagnosis from a doctor that we don't want to hear, but believing that whatever my God ordains is right. Doesn't mean it's not hard, but it's right. It's being in the middle of a trial and affirming that while we cannot understand this, God does understand this. 
And God doesn't just do things to his people. And God doesn't leave his people. And he still loves. Doesn't mean we aren't sad at times. But it's looking at it differently. It's having a memorial service for a believer. And rather than talking about uh, sickness and suffering and death and dwelling on that which has taken place in that way, it is looking at the exact same circumstance with hope and with peace and looking to the future. That's the difference. Paul says about grief, believers shouldn't grieve like those without hope. He doesn't say don't grieve, but but when you grieve, do it with transformed minds. And you will do it with hope. Look at the results of giving ourselves to God in that way and letting our minds be transformed that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I hear so many and I meet with so many that are just struggling with with knowing God's will. Here's the thing we've got to remember. He has revealed 90% of his will to us in, in the word of God. And we spend most of our time trying to figure out that 10%. and ignore the 90%. So many times our greatest problem is not not knowing God's will, but accepting it. So what does that mean for you right now? Well, I don't know exactly what it means for each person in this room. But many of you, like me, if last year on Mother's Day... You wouldn't have guessed what your circumstances are this year on Mother's Day. Some for better and some not. I'm thankful that we don't know. But what I'm most thankful for is that between now and next year on Mother's Day, no matter what happens to you, no matter what happens to me or to anyone we love, the God of mercy is still there and is still in charge. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you by your your spirit transform our our minds? Will you? We ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.